This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Thanks for listening to the ungated version of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. If you want to read some essays on some of these topics, please check out razib.substack.com. Again, that's razib.substack.com. Thank you. Hi there. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their children than ever before. I want to introduce you to ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because you can reduce the risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use the code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. Hey, everybody. This is Razib Khan with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and we have a second-time uh, guest, and um, I am reaching out uh, for my guest's book. Uh, this is Eric Howell, uh, or Hole. Is it Hole or Howell? Howell, like Noel. Okay, that's what I, yeah, I think I think we went through this the last time, too. Um, Howell, like Noel, and uh, uh, your book is the, the World Behind the World, Consciousness, Free Will, and the Limits of Science. Um, and, uh, you know, you have a substack, the, the intrinsic perspective, which actually is, uh, a big deal in this book, uh, because you have the extrinsic perspective and the intrinsic perspective. And, uh, it's a, it's a pretty um, dense little book. It's well-written, um, I have to say, and there's a lot of things in here that, uh, people will recognize that are the type of people that I would say that I honestly listen to this podcast, like, you know, Julian Jane's, uh, bicameral mind, all sorts of neat, neat things in there. But, um, I want to talk really quickly about books and writing, um, because I told you before I got on, um, you know, this is not an academic monograph. Uh, it's not turgidly written. Uh, it's very engagingly written, but also it's not, um, how do I say this? There are certain people who popularize where uh, the content is not very dense. Um, and I feel like you have a good balance there. And um, it's not your first book. Uh, can you just talk about writing a book like this? Like, do you have, I don't know, a natural talent? Or do you very, very consciously try to thread this sort of needle uh, between, oh, like infotainment, let's say at one end, Versus that, you know, dry 150 page monograph? Yeah, that's such a good question. Because, because I do think that it, re- it, it requires having not so much some very particular process, but rather having a particular target. And to me, the target is, is always, can I, can I, can I say something, um, which is both interesting to people who are not myself, <laughs> And that is also original. Um, can I squeak in something that's 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 actually that's actually new? Um, and, and I think that that comes from the academic in me. You know, I got I, I got my PhD in neuroscience. Um, you know, I've, I've long been an academic, and, and when you're an academic, the coin of the realm is papers, right? And and each paper is supposed to be, um, you know, so, something something novel, something new. Um, and and I'm someone who who 
who, who really, I, th I think almost innately took, took that to heart. And so I feel if I'm going to write a book, um, that it has to bring something new to the table, some sort of new perspective, a new idea, a new hypothesis. Um, and then the goal for me becomes, how can I do something that's both, you know, very interesting to others and can have a wider reach, but I can also sneak, sneak some stuff in there that could have been an academic monograph. Like, you, you, you know, you're, you're taking sort of something that could have been a university press book by itself and transforming it. And that's actually a big pet peeve of mine when I read a lot of popular science is that I, I, I often feel that after you've read five, 10, you know, popular science books in a particular subject, you really start to get a diminishing return effect. Um, you know, if you, if you, you'll feel this very strongly, you know, um, if, if, if you go out and you read, you know, Steven Pinker's How the Mind Works, uh, and then you read some Douglas Hofstadter, and then you read some, you know, Richard Dawkins or something, you begin to see that there's just this huge amount of overlap. Um, and so I sort of just fundamentally, you know, reject this notion that like popular writing can't have a lot of depth and that things that are depth can't be popular. I do think that there's a, an upper bound that I'm innately accepting when I go to write a project like this. I have to sort of set aside my writerly desire to be a number one New York Times bestseller because I know that that's absolutely never going to happen if it's like, you, you know, a deep sort of, you know, exploration of consciousness or some of these other subjects. But that just having that target, I think, I think helps. I, I think that 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 just just having it viewable and having it not be that I'm going to create some buzzy, um, you know, new book about psychology or something, but it's actually going to be something that I feel I'm contributing, um, and and, and yeah, and that, and that's a huge goal of mine. So I'm I'm actually extremely flattered and glad that you picked that up. Well, so you're also a novelist, uh, you know, your novel Revelations, uh, the Revelations uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know was you know we we discussed a little bit about it i think in a previous visit and do you think writing fiction helps you in any way i i do think that every nonfiction writer should try their hand at fiction um at some point and i think that the best nonfiction writers are are frustrated fiction writers um it, it in in that you know to be to, to, to be an actually successful fiction writer is almost, it's almost a completely impossible thing. Um, there, there's more openings in, 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 in genre and, and, you know, not, not to exclude that or anything, but if you, if you take sort of like genre stuff away, so you take away the really big fantasy authors and you take away the really big sci-fi authors and you're just sort of left with, you know, people trying to write literature, the number of people who then make a living through that, is so much smaller than the list of, of billionaires, right? And with nonfiction, that list is much, much larger. Um, and, and so, and I don't even think it's, it's necessarily about being, about being good. Um, that, 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 that like we have some sort of super efficient market for like finding good writers. I, I don't think that that's true. Uh, but it is the case that if you are, if you are pretty good at writing fiction, uh, there's almost still no way you can make a living off of it, but you can take some of that uh, pizzazz. Yeah, right. You can take some of that like love of language and then transform it into uh, into nonfiction. And I've always thought that some of the best 
nonfiction writers were were essentially frustrated fiction authors or they have a book that like was good but it didn't do you know amazingly you can look at everyone from Joan Didion to you know plenty of other like great essayists to see that exact same effect so um you know i hope that uh that that writing fiction sort of, sort of has has had that effect on my work and that it makes me more interested in just in just the actual page just the, like like what's what's on this actual page right yeah yeah um that's I think what you're saying is correct. You obviously would know better than me, but you know when I think about it in terms of literary fiction, uh, when I read about people who write literary fiction, a lot of the times um, they are clubs and groups of aspiring authors reading their own fiction to each other. So it's like, the people aspiring to write that fiction are a substantial number of the people who would consume it. Yes. Yes. And, and that's why even among the authors who, who make quite a bit of money, even, even among the people who are, you know, considered best selling literary fiction authors, most of them make their money teaching at MFA programs. They don't make their money from just selling their writing. It's actually extremely difficult to just make money selling writing. I mean, maybe like Jonathan Franzen can do it, right? Um, you know, a very, very small cadre of, of people. And there is this, um, you know, looking back at, at oneself. I, I, although, you know, as I say that, as I say that though, I, I do think that there's nothing, you know, inherently wrong with pitching towards people who might be a little bit more, um, a little bit more deeply engaged and therefore have an interest, you know, of it in, of it themselves. Like, I, I think there is something to being like a writer's writer. I think, you know, even with nonfiction, if I think about the audience for, you know, a lot of my work, it's people who are, who are like engaged in ideas and maybe they, they could have been a, a, a scientist, right? They still have sort of an, an outsized interest in science and they might think about picking it up. Although I don't think it's as, it's as direct a connection as I'm literally, you know, selling the idea of being a writer to writers. I do think that, that, um, you know, we live in the most educated time that's ever happened. A lot of people do have, um, you know, a, a pretty significant background in things. So um, I've always thought, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I, I've had this joke that I'm sort of, um, when I write online, at least I'm like a sub stacker, sub stacker, right? Like, a, the, the <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much that like other sub stack writers very, very much like, uh, you know, what I'm up to. And then, you know, to a, to a degree that expands out to a general audience. But, um, you know, oftentimes it's just, you know, I get, I get a lot of my subscribers from, for example, yeah. recommendations from other Substacks. I think like 40 to 50% of all my subscribers come from recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, <laughs> you're capturing something there, bro. Uh, definitely when I read your stuff, I'm just like, all right, <laughs> this is, uh, this is it. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's uh, as mass market as some of the stuff like Matt Iglesias is, but uh, this is it, right? <laughs> yeah. There's that. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with being, uh, you know, <laughs> substacker. Substacker is what I is what I tell myself. And I think that this is sort <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Um, this book is sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, if 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 you're if you're interested in consciousness, um, you know, and you've ever thought, oh, maybe I could have gone into you know cognitive science or consciousness, then you know, this is more sort of the book. I I, I fear the people who have, you know, app, you know, you know, they they'll immediately start with just having 
no idea what I'm talking about. And then I have to sort of, you know, yeah. work my way in uh, via concepts. But that's, that's actually being online has made that uh, online life and online culture has made it so much easier to connect with a group of people who are sort of have a sufficient background to be able to both do something popular and something in depth and, and have it reach, you know, at least at least enough of an audience for it to be successful. Yeah, so let's let's get to the book here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the book, but first, like, I want to um, set the stage for the listener. Uh, so, you're a neuroscientist. This is a book, kind of about neuroscience, the biggest, you know, uh, general, you know, class. But neuroscience itself is divided into different fields, uh, and I think we talked about this last podcast. But you know, um, you know, I'm a geneticist. I have some training in molecular biology, although I'm more of a population comp- compute guy. But a lot of the neuroscience that, um, you know, people that I know that work in neuroscience, many of them, it's almost like they're, I don't want to say biochemists or structural biologists, but they're looking at um, how a neuron or a dendrite functions, uh, action potentials, electrophysiology, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, very, very um, reductionistic. Very, very mechanistic. Okay, so that's one end of neuroscience. Uh, you talked about cognitive neuroscience. There's also cognitive science, which is uh, kind of a mishmash of cognitive neuroscience, psychology, philosophy. You know, okay, you think about how you think, right? Um, so I get that. And then you have cognitive neuroscience, which I think that's your interest. And that's, I mean, really, I think cognitive neuroscience is what people are really, really interested in. There's not too many, I mean, you know, popular neuroscience books tend to, be biased towards cognitive neuroscience, okay? So, um, you know, and how you think and consciousness, um, that's that's a big deal. Can you situate, um, you know, elucidate on that at all in terms of, like, what the listener would get out of this book? Uh, you know, not much chemistry, but, you know, more stuff related to consciousness, and there's a lot of philosophy in there, too, and history. Yes, and, and, and I think that in some ways, the strangeness of neuroscience is an effect of its of its history. If you look at the very early psychologists, you know, from William James to, to Wilhelm Wundt, you know, these people who are, um, you know, it, eventually sort of the, the, the godfathers of psychology. And then, you know, in a sense, uh, neuroscience, particularly cognitive neuroscience is just is just, you know, trying to map psychology into the brain. Um, if you look at these early scientists who, who didn't see much of a distinction, um, you know, there was no clear, like, only neuroscience and only psychology back then. Um, they, they, they're all very interested in one major question, which is essentially that how does the brain generate a stream of consciousness? And by stream of consciousness, um, I think people should, should know I'm, I'm, I'm not really referring to something very mysterious. I'm referring to something that we all have direct access to. It's the stream of thoughts, experiences, and sensations that begins when you wake up in the morning from a dreamless sleep, and that, you know, ends when you go back into a dreamless sleep, or that vanishes under anesthesia. And neuroscience went through this odd period where, um, due to the sort of the rise of scientific pragmatism, pragmatism, and so on, uh, and, and behaviorism, it became very difficult to talk about consciousness. I mean, it became essentially academically unacceptable to talk about consciousness. And that's because consciousness, despite being so familiar to us in, in, um, and in some cases, the thing we're most familiar with, it also has this very odd property, which is that it seems to concern subjective feelings and states. And so therefore locating it within the realm of uh, science, which is traditionally focused on 
the extrinsic, which is sort of the term I use in my book to refer to mechanistic descriptions. Um, it has this quality that seems very difficult to relate to. We don't quite know how to relate those two things. And so therefore, you know, for a long time, the easiest thing to do was just sort of cut out the subjective from science and leave it and leave it to the side. And it created this very strange uh, situation in, in neuroscience where what everyone wants to know um, what the question they want answered from neuroscience is is basically how how consciousness happens. Um, and yet, without a, being able to talk about consciousness, the field sort of had to skirt around it. It had to like invent, you know, cognitive neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience like studies, you know, it studies attention or working memory or things. But it, it becomes immediately obvious, right, that these are concepts that only exist within the notion of consciousness, right? So it's like you're attending to things. Okay, w- w- what is this window of attention operating within? What is this spotlight of attention operating within? Well, it's operating within your stream of consciousness. You're attending to some things or, 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 or not other things, right? And so you've sort of tried to take away these, these s- the, 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 the main domain that links everything together. And you get this very fractured, very um, strange field and it doesn't actually make very much. It doesn't. It doesn't. It hasn't actually made very much progress when you just consider. Uh, when you when you just sort of consider it by itself. I mean, one one example of an indictment of this would be that almost nothing from cognitive science has mattered very much for AI. Very broad concepts have mattered. So, for example, artificial neural networks, where we just looked at how neurons operated and then tried to instantiate them. But there's nothing specific from cognitive science. Right. If you if you remember, you know, the textbooks where it's like it's like a set of boxes and arrows. Right. It's like perception box arrow to attention, you know, box arrow. Right. N- none of that stuff has really been very impactful or, or mattered in any way for for AI. And that's because we just still don't have a very good conception of it. And this began to change. And, 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 and you know, people suspected that's because, you know, we don't have a good theory of consciousness and there's not even a scientific effort to find a theory of consciousness. And it really took the efforts of two, two men, Francis Crick, uh, the co-discoverer of DNA, and um, uh, Gerald Edelman, who um, basically discovered how the immune system functions and won the Nobel Prize for that. And it took those two men essentially saying, we want a scientific theory of consciousness. uh, Because when you have a Nobel Prize, you can, you can sort of do, do whatever you like. Yeah, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. Um, we'll get, we'll get to the astonishing hypothesis of Crick and all that stuff. Um, but, um, talk about history. Uh, okay. Julian Jane's, uh, crazy idea, the bicameral mind, the origins of consciousness. This is super popular. I think you have a very, very good, uh, not necessarily debunking, but, um, critique, uh, of it. Um, it's a very entertaining book. It always comes up. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's, well, you know, speaking of like writers, writers, right? It's sort of like um, a, a consciousness researcher's consciousness researcher, right? Would be uh, Julian Jaynes. Um, and his book, uh, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, I think 76, it's published. And it's one of the few books of that era that directly talks about the scientific problem of consciousness. So already it's, it's sort of remarkable in that way. It's beautifully written as well. Um, and the thesis of it, um, you know, helps helps its attraction because it's the 70s, right? Um, and, you know, the, the thesis that he had was essentially that by analyzing old text, he could sort of trace the historical development of consciousness, um, you, you know, it's essentially that are arguing that, you know, within the 
within the Iliad, the characters are hearing God's voices. This is essentially just a metaphor for them actually literally having essentially unconnected auditory hallucinations or sort of moments. And, and those are essentially moments of consciousness, uh, of actual consciousness. And it's only sort of in this post-Homeric era um, that you actually get full-fledged, you know, human human consciousness. Um, and it, it's a very fun hypothesis because, of course, it draws from a huge number of things. I, it, it was immediately... It, it, and in some ways, you know, Julian Jades has a huge amount of my sympathy because it's such sort of like an elegant, fun idea. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the audaciousness of it is is very uh, is very attractive. But I think just to be very honest, from the very beginning, the initial critique of it was and in fact, uh, a very famous philosopher of mind is the first I can find to make this critique. He makes it in a review in the Boston the Boston Globe, I think, uh, where he reviews the book and he says, you know, there's a really much easier uh, hypothesis that that we should consider, which is essentially just that the way that we talk about minds has changed significantly. So it's not it's not that the minds themselves have changed. It's just that the way we describe and talk about minds uh, has changed. And I, I thought that that was that that actually deserved its own sort of expansion, right? Like a lot of people have made this point, but no one's really expanded it. Um, that I've seen in in a in a way that that I think would be interested. And so so I thought I sort of took this idea from from Julian James, where he's sort of applying, looking at history almost through the lens of someone who's interested from a scientific perspective in consciousness. And then I, I sort of the initial part of this book is an attempt to do the same. It's to look at you know the lens of history through this notion of well, we do get better about talking and referring to our own conscious states over time. And this is what I call the intrinsic perspective. And that is something that actually does develop. And it, it mirrors in many ways the development of the extrinsic perspective, which sort of gives us science. But it, it, sh- it should be very notable that if you look at, you know, contemporary media, it refers to mental states with a facility and ease that's just totally lacking, you know, for ancient texts. It's, it's not that they're mind blind, but they're just not very interested in describing the, the 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 deepness of phenomenology of the structure of your conscious experience, right? They're just they're just not very interested in minds. Yeah, it's uh, I don't recall uh, Achilles being very uh, reflective after the kidnapping of his sex slave by Agamemnon. Um, he decided to sulk and act. <laughs> in the world <laughs> and so you know i i, I want to do explore really quickly before we go back to the science of element and crick um you know you 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 de- you describe an arc of um <clears throat> the this intrinsic perspective during the um classical greece and then during the dark ages after the fall of rome it kind of kind of diminishes somewhat although i mean saint augustine confessions that's uh that's pretty in, intrinsic, I would say, right? That's, so that's true. On the, but, the border. That's yeah. true. That's true. But uh, but 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 when exactly? Right. That's that's uh, you know. So yeah, so, no, yeah, no, He yeah. He was he was a classical. You're right. He was classically trained. Yes. So, so yes. but 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 I think I, I was actually quite interested when I was researching this. Um, so one of the things that I did was that I went through a bunch of um, you know, essentially the old texts that I could find. And, and read different versions of them. And so, first of all, there's a huge 
change in the translate. There's a huge change in in the perceived mentality uh, that the reader gets depending on the translation. So a lot of modern translators like to put in sort of st- like if you've ever read like you know a, a great example of this would be a recent translation of the Iliad right you have all sorts of yeah, mental yeah. states going on right and the further back you go in terms of the translation sort of the less that there is the less of this reading um and and uh, and I was able to find a lot of text to sort of support my to support basically the argument that that our our knowledge of the intrinsic perspective basically also just like everything else gets invented uh, you know in, in ancient Greece. I mean, like like essentially like 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 it, it's when literature first starts. Literature is all about describing minds. They start to get good at describing minds. Uh, right around then, literature starts to sort of look a, a, a little bit modern and recognizable. Uh, then, but but if you look at um, if if you look at the Dark Ages, I actually ran this problem where there's literally just like no texts that you can find. I mean, you can find texts that are uh, that are written, but I was shocked by how inaccessible everything everything was and how 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 poorly described everything was. You know, I, I think people now you 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 consistently hear this this uh, this sort of new narrative that there was never really like a, a Dark Ages, but certainly. It felt like that in that I couldn't even find research material, uh, you know, for post 500 AD, like 500 AD to 800 AD. Like try really finding, you know, texts wherein people discuss mental states like anywhere, like, 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 like anywhere in Europe. Right. And it's very, it's actually quite difficult. Uh, So so I was quite I was quite su- surprised by that. I, I sort of briefly mentioned that in the book that it was actually quite difficult to even find things. But but an example would be that I, I think that in Pompeii, um, um, that they, they found something like eleven thousand individual cases of graffiti. You know, and a lot of them read like tweets. You know, they're like Thelonious the Stallion was here, right? It's sort of like scrawled like on the bathroom wall, and th- there's political slogans and there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, but the try finding graffiti, you know. A- anywhere you, you know during like the, the the classically described dark ages you you just can't um yeah. and and so you go from you know eleven thousand instances of graffiti in a town of like three thousand people to just nothing um and, and so i i i i think that we 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 were not you would not rate our ability to describe minds in depth and highly uh as a civilization and i make very clear by the way in the book that i i'm limited very limited to talking about the west here Right. Um, and that's just due to, the, like, as you said, you know, yeah, you can't, the, the you book can't covers a lot of ground, whole, right? Yeah, <laughs> There's can, no way for me to actively yeah, like go through everything. Yeah. Um, how, how many translations of the Bhagavad Gita did you, did you read? Eric? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm very yeah. sympathetic to, to that. And I'm, and yeah. I, and I agree. Right. Like, so, so essentially yeah. I, I'm just making this claim that this is in a sense, it is a book in, in a sense, when we talk about, when we talk about Western history, we're talking about Rome um and, and the expansion of the and, and the roman empire and where the roman empire falls um and and, and sort of the how, how pe- people pick up the pieces after that and so very much the story that i tell um of people discovering how to describe mental states and then in very many and then in a sense losing that ability uh during the dark ages to describe where almost every description of mental state if you can find one you'll find that it's generally about religious experience it's not about um, you know, just just normal everyday experience, or 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 any other subject, um, and that that 
and then it, and then you see the ability to describe mental states rise again uh um you know during uh during europe from you know 1400 to, to 1800 and it sort of peaks you know when when essentially the modern novel is invented i mean i think that there's a deep there's an argument that you know literature is the best thing at representing and discussing and making art about consciousness. It doesn't mean it's the best art form of all time, but it's unique in its powers as a medium. And so, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that literature sort of gets formed right around you know the same point. I mean, like like you know, real serious novels um, of the kind that we would could 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 read now and recognize exactly as a novel. That that peaks around. Uh, the same people and in, in in the same place as uh, as science does, right? Because they're sort of these two yeah. very opposite perspectives of the world. One focused on the extrinsic and mechanism and physics, and the other focused on the intrinsic. And they have this very um, you know symmetric rise and fall throughout the ages. I guess uh, one of the striking things in the book is uh, was it like a, a chip? Was it a computer chip? Um, you were. Ba- I mean, look, there's part of the book where you're basically like. We don't know nothing about consciousness and neuroscience. <laughs> kind of, I'm like, whoa, this is. Uh, I mean, like, there's there's a chip. Like, I'm trying to describe it, and neuroscientists are trying to design it, and like, they can't figure anything out. Can you talk yeah, about I, that I think I think w- one thing is that um, you know within neuroscience, the way that neuroscience operates, and a lot of people don't don't know this, is that there is no big overarching theory of brain function within neuroscience. So this is extremely different than, for example, biology. So in biology, right, you have the theory of evolution. And the theory of evolution, you know, there, there can be all sorts of complexities within the theory of evolution by natural selection. There can be, you know, n- there can be uh, you know, neutral drift, right? There can be like genetic drift. There can be, uh, you know, uh, there can, m- maybe there's group level selection. Maybe there's, right? So you have this, it's, it's not to say that there's some, you know, completely agreed upon way by which evolution happens, but there's still this very overarching theory and everything slots into that theory, right? There's a very famous saying that nothing in biology makes sense except for, except in the light of evolution. And so you can have biology before a theory of evolution. Like there were biologists, right? But you can see how it has to be fundamentally methodological, right? Like Kuhn would describe biology before Darwin as being, um, you know, pre, pre-paradigmatic. Yeah. I mean, can you, um, so you, and you're a Kuhnian, right? Yes. And, and I, and I think, and I think that one could then, like reasonably described by right, the analogy just to complete it is that you, you could make the exact same argument about contemporary neuroscience is that it's very difficult uh, to do science. You basically end up with a grab bag of methodologies when you don't have a big overarching theory and you want to do empirical work. Um, you describe stuff. You describe stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're sort of like, you're sort of like a cartographer, but you don't really know, you know, exactly, you know, wh- where to go or how, how, how things work. And a great example of this is that, you know, okay, but that would be fine if the methodologies that we have are known to produce, you know, actionable, useful information. But there's all sorts of actually very good, like high level reasons to believe that that's probably not the case in neuroscience. Um, you know, and 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 one and one like really fun example of this is that I, I think it was 2017. There was this great paper called "Could a Neuroscientist Understand a Microprocessor?" And in it, the the, the neuroscientist basically took this uh, this 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 computer chip 
uh, that have been completely, it was basically completely worked and understood. There's like 3000 transistors in it. And this is the computer ship that could run Donkey Kong and a couple other games on a Nintendo. And it had been perfectly reconstructed. So we know, we know everything about this chip, right? We, 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 we literally made the chip. And then the question that they asked was, if we forget that this chip plays Donkey Kong, and we forget that it can play Space Invaders. Can we take the techniques of neuroscience, which are things like knockout experiments where we knock out a part of the chip and see what happens, or calculate, you know, the mutual information between two parts of the chip, or look at the, or, you know, look, look at the firing rates, right, of the transistors or what have you, right? Can we take the methodologies of neuroscience, apply it to the chip, and then, you know, figure out that this thing plays Donkey Kong and, and how it does it and so on? And the answer was, the answer was essentially like, like utterly dismal. Like they, 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 you would have absolutely no idea that this thing plays Donkey Kong if you didn't know it already. Um, and, and, and you will got almost no insight into how it plays Donkey Kong. Um, a great, ex- a, an example of this is, you know, they're doing these knockout experiments where they delete the transistors and see what happens to the behavior of the chip. And what they found was essentially that half of the deletions did nothing just nothing changed and then half of the deletions just broke just broke the chip and then there's this tiny sliver you know of like a couple of deletions that specifically impacted donkey kong but not some of the other games as so you might think okay these now we found them these are like the donkey kong specific transistors right they're like the the the, the equivalent in neuroscience would be grandmother neurons right these are the things that respond only to, to donkey kong and you need to have them uh you know to, to 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 play donkey kong and so these are like these these chips represent donkey kong in some way that would be like the natural read of it but it actually turns out that they, those the, what, what those parts of the chip we're doing uh, just had absolutely nothing to do with Donkey Kong. It was, bas- it was basically just exactly how the code booted up and it, it just interfered with exactly how that code booted up. It didn't have anything to do with game. It didn't have anything to do with, with, with essentially anything. So, you know, w- w- this, there, this sort of leads to this larger question. And it's a question I've asked, you know, other neuroscientists and I've never just, I've just never gotten a real satisfactory answer out of it. And that's that, you know, for artificial neural networks, things like, GPT-4, um, they're very, very big, but we have perfect access to them. And yet, legendarily, they are mathematical black boxes. We, we just don't know how they actually function or how they do what they do. Um, the, the, they're, they're inscrutable, right? Uh, they're just these huge matrices of numbers. Um, and the techniques that they use to, to try to make these scrutable, and none of the techniques are very good or can scale, are very thought about, you know, it's a very active area of AI research. And yet, and they're much more advanced, they rely on, you know, having this perfect knowledge of how the system is operating. And so the question I've, I've sort of asked fellow neuroscientists, and again, just never gotten a good answer is, well, if that's the case for an artificial neural network, how much worse is it for like a real biological neural network? Um, and, and, and so why do you sort of have this expectation that your techniques aren't running into this, you know, inscrutability? Uh, and there, there really just is no good answer to it. You, you essentially have to argue that, that the biological system of the brain 
is less complex than sort of an equivalently sized artificial neural network, which like you can, you can sort of make the argument a little bit work by saying, oh, well, it's not all to all connectivity, you know, in a biological brain or so on. But it's, it's, it's very weak T in terms of the responses. Um, and, and I, I think that effectively what's happening is that there is a, a layer to the brain that is understandable. I mean, it almost has to be because that's our consciousness. We clearly have repeatable, sensible phenomenology in response to stimulus, you know, and so on, right? But that doesn't fall out. Neur- neuroscience is, is not specifically targeting that. Um, and so um, and so I sort of make this argument that you know, for, for neuroscience to become post-paradigmatic, it needs a theory of consciousness. It needs some some big picture thing to fit its diverse methodological results into, or else otherwise you sort of just have this big grab bag of different methodologies and results. And it's really not even coherent as a science. And people really, you know, it's the 21st century. People really don't like to hear that, right? Because they think, you know, we live in this age of, uh, you know, infinite progress or, or so on. But um, I, I think in a way, we're very far behind when it comes to, to, to understanding consciousness. And that's, I think, the main question of neuroscience. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's tough. Uh, it's tough because uh, it is a hard problem. Um, but, you know, science is quite often hard. So, Let's talk about uh, you know these two guys. Um, they're they're men uh, or were men. Uh, Edelman, uh, Francis Crick, Gerald Edelman, Gerald Edelman. Uh, I believe he's a physiologist, and Francis yep. Crick, obviously a well, physicist, but became a geneticist. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah, well what was you know what's what's interesting about the two men is that they 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 really had a little bit of like an animus uh, for, for each other because they're just such big personalities. I think, um, but they both had won their Nobel prize and then looked at, looked around at science effectively and and said like, what are the open areas of research? And a big one that they, that they saw was that there's no good theory of consciousness. And so they both sort of set about um, establishing the field of consciousness research. And now consciousness research is like a very, very healthy growing but small subfield of neuroscience. And it's taken much more seriously now. Like we happen to sort of live in like, effectively a golden age of consciousness research. Uh, my career wouldn't have been replicable in the even in the 80s, right? I got my PhD working with Giulio Tononi, who is the, the founder of one of the leading theories of consciousness called integrated information theory. Um, you know, the, the, the privilege of sort of being a PhD student able to study consciousness and these big questions in neuroscience is, uh, is what was historically incredibly rare. And it only broke through, I think, essentially because of the weight you know, the weight of the names and the Nobel prizes behind them said, we need to have some sort of neural correlates of consciousness, we need to figure out, okay, what is what is actually the difference in your brain between processing something consciously versus processing it unconsciously? What's the principal difference? What's the neural correlate? Um, And, and I think without them, um, you know, I'm not even sure that the field would 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 really exist. I mean, I, I think that there's a chance you know, the problem with talking about consciousness, and this is why I'm always so sort of leery of, 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 of really big leaps and uh, about it, is that it does attract 
a wildness. And that's because it's a wild problem. But we we talked about Julian Jaynes as sort of being like this. It's, it's, it is like a wild hypothesis, right? That it that it just leaps into being. And and there's other wild hypotheses around consciousness. Like maybe it's maybe it's you know the 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 the, the waveform collapse in the microtubules, you know, or something. And I, I don't even mean to like poke fun at these so much as to say that there is a danger, which is that the field doesn't proceed conservatively enough to convince people that it can be a real science and and not leap to like wild conclusions. I think the other thing that these two people did with the the reason the weight of the Nobel Prize was so impactful was because they said, this is a serious, real scientific problem where there is some, some, you know, in retrospect, not that wild solution to it, you know, in that you don't need to do crazy metaphysics or something like maybe we can just sort of figure this out from looking at the brain. Um, and that was the, the, the force of the argument that created the field as it stands. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, honestly, like, you know, I, I read the astonishing hypothesis uh when i was a kid obviously i'm not that old um and uh you know there's a lot about vision but i i'm not i didn't retain too much actually i'm not gonna lie um so you know okay if crick is materialist type of guy you know he doesn't believe in souls okay so consciousness is material right that's a big thing for him i mean i think this is taken for granted by a lot of scientists, but it's a little bit of an exotic idea for the general public. And then Edelman has his own theory of like neural Darwinism or something. Um, mm-hmm. And so can you, can you outline like what their general um, frameworks were? Cause they're, fr- yeah, they're trying I to think, create a framework. Yeah. I think, it, you know, in a way I would say that they both, they, they both sort of ended the, the, their careers. They, 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 they died without having really fully established a viable hypothesis on each side, but they had very different approaches. And it's really the approach that's sort of the most interesting um, in terms of the distinction. So, you know, Francis Crick, you know, he would propose these really simple testable hypotheses. So you'd say, listen, maybe consciousness is the integration of the brain that's occurring at the gamma frequency, which is just a particular frequency that you'll notice in local field potentials, or if you're using an electroencephalogram, and it's, you know, it's very common around visual processing and visual stimuli. Um, And, you know, that, that sort of hypothesis, I think it's, it's almost certainly wrong. Right. But it was very like, here's almost like this toy model that we can start with. Let's just let's just correlate this to conscious states. We can sort of figure out the metaphysics later. And um, Edelman had a a very different approach. His was like a theory based approach. And it's funny because their their actual like like backgrounds, like how they won the Nobel Prize was very different, where, where, where Edelman essentially had this very like complex theory about how the immune system functions and then came up with. Um, you know, tr- tr- try to essentially come up with empirical support to, to 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 justify sort of this theoretical intuition that aspects of the immune system worked very similar to natural selection, where you would have uh, you know variation and then you would have selection over the antibodies, right? So he had this like very like high level theory theory first approach. And Crick, you know, there's a very famous part of the Crick and Watson paper, the last line of it. 
um, you know, says something and, and that was, you know, done at, you know, uh, I think the, I think the, I forget if the paper was written or if they were just talking about the results, but it was down at Woods Hole, which is which is about 20 minutes away from where I live. I was just down there yesterday. Um, and it's a little spot on Cape Cod and uh, or a little research outpost. And and, you know, they would um, they, they have this famous part of their paper, which says something like. You know, the it, it, it does not escape our notice that the, you know, helical structure of DNA suggests, you know, its function, right? So it's basically like we have this empirical result, which is this, um, these, these, these essentially f- photographs of what we think this thing might look like. And now here's the model of, you know, how it actually functions, you know, as a helix. And then sort of broadly, obviously, that hints at its function, but it was sort of like, almost like the empirical stuff came first. And then it was just very obvious, you could just build a theory off of that. So I think that, you know, when, when both men like approach the brain, they brought that they brought that with them. And so and so Edelman was much more focused on like a much more complex hypothesis first sort of approach, where he develops this whole idea about neural Darwinism, he's basically trying to do the same trick he did with the immune system, but apply it uh, to, to, to neurons. I think in many ways, neural Darwinism has been, you know, you know it's, it's, it's not it's not really like been been adopted in the mainstream. And in some ways, it's been like a lot of things in neuroscience basically put to the side by by AI, right? Like no one's ever created some great AI model that works via like neural Darwinism, right? They, it does it via backpropagation, which which is different, right? Uh, it's fundamentally different in in in, in some ways. So, um, so so I think you know in in terms of the actual success, they're really their success was sort of creating a field, like creating legitimacy around asking um, this particular question, which is how does the brain instantiate consciousness and that is i think a it's it's a it's a it's a almost like a tectonic point for metaphysics right like as you said right they, there, there almost has to be some sort of philosophical or metaphysical speculations around there because it's where our two main conceptions of the world the intrinsic where we are assigning mental states to things right we're assigning um you know the the, the reasons for your behavior or your mental states and so on and then sort of the extrinsic, which is this notion of scientific science and, 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 and mechanism, that's where they meet, right? They meet in the brain. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's sort of funny because the field, you know, as, as I said, you want to maintain as to be as conservative as possible. At the same time, it's very unclear how to actually solve this problem without being a little bit wild. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I mean, I'm not going to say we're in the wild west uh, of neuroscience, but I mean, you know, we are pre-theory, uh, as you would say, pre-paradigmatic. And so uh, uh, we are not Sumerian magicians, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> a little a little bit of that going on here. Um, so I want to talk to you about, um, okay, so we have these two, you know, big reductionistic scientists. Uh, you know, big deals for the 20th century that kind of kickstarted uh, your field in a way. Um, you know, uh, in the in, in the second half of the of the century. Um, well, it's la- definitely the last fourth, I'm assuming. But in any case, um, uh, you eventually get to you know the issue of phenomenology uh, and theory of phenomenology of consciousness. Um, uh, can you um, describe for the listener what phenomenology is? It's a whole. You know, it's a whole it's, thing in philosophy, but just, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, an old, it's an old term that essentially is um, 
that that is essentially like if you introspect about your own consciousness, what sort of properties do you run into? Um, and um, the, the the theory of consciousness that that I worked on in graduate school and that I thought and I did so because I thought it was the only theory that looked sort of interesting and wild enough, but also still being sort of within the bounds of of established science is um, I think one can call it like a phenomenological theory and that it starts with some observations about your own consciousness. An example would be that your consciousness is always integrated or unified, right? You're always having one, one, one part of consciousness. Now, some aspects of this can break down, right? Like during, you know, uh, you know, hallucinogenic drug use, right? You, there's sort of these arguable edge cases, but most of the time you're having this singular stream of consciousness. Um, there's, and, and another example would be your stream of consciousness is composed of all sorts of different you know, senses and objects, and yet it also still coheres, right? So you can look at, you know, a red cup, and you're not seeing redness separate from cupness or anything, right? Like they're, they're fundamentally combined. And there's literally like an interesting question just from talking, you, you might think this sounds, you know, this is, you know, for, for, for like meditators or philosophers, but it's like, okay, but we're experiencing this. So there has to be some, some neural explanation for what's actually going on here, right? Um, and and one answer would be that well, maybe maybe we can maybe we can do this sort of very clever move, right? It, 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 this move is it, it's almost it's almost a, a a move that's too clever by half, and that's to say, well, if we examine our properties of phenomenology and we try to ask how can a physical system account for these things, um, then maybe we can sort of create a theory of consciousness. Um, that, that is, that is very good at measuring consciousness. Like, even if we don't quite explain it, we might still be able to have, have something that, that measures it really well. And that's not just some metaphysical thing as a, as a goal. It's, 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 you know, very necessary. Like, like, um, you know, a certain percentage of people wake up under anesthesia. Um, you're also given a paralytic. So you're conscious, but you're paralyzed. And you're, you're also given a drug that wipes out your short-term memory, by the way. So then we're just talking about the cases of people who remember that this happened to them. Um, and they have to undergo this utterly terrible experience. And that's because there's no sort of tool that we can directly point at people's heads that tell us whether or not they're actually conscious or not. They're, we can sort of get rough statistical estimates based off of like the complexity of your EEG or something. But none of it's like really like lawfully based, right? Um, you know, so this is like a, a real question. And then the, the, the sort of one approach is to look at the properties of your experience and then say, okay, well, what would a physical system need to do to uh, satisfy that? And an example would be that, well, a system needs to be integrated, right? Like we can just think about it, right? If I, if I like put a wall in between you and you and me, right, our, our consciousness, our consciousnesses would not be impacted by this. But if you put a wall in between my two hemispheres, right? If you if you cut in between my two hemispheres, we know that that can radically change the the constitution of someone's phenomenology and their consciousness. You might even be able to spawn multiple consciousnesses within there. This is work that Gazanaga and Sperry and other people did on split brain patients, um, showing that there might literally be two streams of consciousnesses if you cut the brain essentially down the middle. Um, and that seems like a that seems like okay, so. 
wait, but that that means we we do have something to say about consciousness, right? It's very it's very broad, but it's like, well, if the physical system is not integrated, if it if if you just can't pass information between like two parts of a system, right? Uh, then it it can't possibly be unified in any real sense, right? Um, and so therefore, it can't possibly it can't possibly be conscious because that conscious you know that that consciousness would lack what seems like an essential property, which is that you sort of have this integrated unified experience. Um, so that that's that's obviously like so broad, but think about what you can do with that. You can now start making judgments about consciousness, right? You can say, okay, well, you know, there couldn't be, and and again, this sounds like. So like the picking the the, 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 the you're, you're almost speaking in tautologies here, but uh, but it is saying something and that's more than uh, more than almost anything else. Right. You, you could say, you know, there's no consciousness, you know, between, um, you know, th- there's no sort of group consciousness between you and I, because when you put, you know, a wall between us, you wouldn't, you know, the, 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 the consciousness would sort of go on unaffected or so on. Um, you can sort of say, you know, systems that can't talk to one another, we don't have to worry about, you know, there being some sort of group mind in between them because they can't even, they can't even communicate. Right. Um, another example of this would be that your conscious experience, another example from phenomenology, your conscious experience seems very informative. People have this notion that consciousness is not informative. That's mostly, um, I, I think mostly false. I really don't think that the evidence bears that out. I, we have a very richly informative stream of consciousness. And one example of this would be, um, you know, you're always think about what you're ruling out by being in your particular conscious state, right? So it's like, I'm seeing one frame of an individual movie. That means I'm ruling out seeing all the other frames of every movie that I could ever imagine seeing. Um, and, you know, information is about how many possibilities you rule out. So if I flip a coin and I rule out, and I get heads, I've ruled out tails. So the information doesn't actually come from getting heads. Well, it comes from getting heads, but it doesn't come from the actual heads itself. It comes from ruling out the counterfactual, not heads, right? If it had heads on both sides, I wouldn't be getting any information from it. Um, I, if I throw a die and I get a one, I know I didn't get a two, three, four, five, and six. So I get more information than flipping a coin. Okay, so your conscious experience, you see you know, a, a, a screenshot from a Western. What are you ruling out? Well, you're ruling out like every frame of every possible movie ever. You're ruling out so much, right? So your conscious experience is, I think, very informative. But that also allows us to maybe, maybe we can ask systems. So systems should have many states, right? They should have lots yeah. and lots of states if they're going to be conscious. Again, very broad, but it does actually rule some stuff out. That's yeah, a phenomenological I mean, theory, in other words. <laughs> it's like very broad, like rule-based yeah. stuff, and then you can try to make it more precise. Well, I, I'm wondering how this relates. You know, you're talking about hemispheres, and I know the left brain, right brain thing can be a little overdone, but, you know, aphasiacs, people that have brain injuries, um, you know, okay, it's been a while since I've read a lot of neuroscience. So, you know, there are issues where, so I think like your left eye goes into your, because the eye is part of the brain. It goes into the right, right? So they're flipped. Okay. So there are cases where um, weird things happen. Like, okay, you see something on the left side of your vision and your field of vision. And, you know, scientists are like, identify that. And you, you can't, uh, you don't know what it is. And then they're like, okay, we'll draw it. And you can draw it easy, you know? So you see what it is and you can replicate it. But you just don't know what it is. 
right? Like, what yeah. is that? What is that? How does that relate to an, an example? An example of this sort of like, um, there's sort of like this tendency to overclaim that your conscious experience isn't as as rich as you as you as you think it is, right? And uh, often a way to, that people do this is like change change blindness experiments. And change blindness experiments is like I, you're looking at an image, your eyes are fixated, and I like change something about the image, and then I see if you notice, you know. And it's it's often like very sneaky stuff. Like it's it's honestly like sometimes it's it's, it's more obvious, but it's it's honestly like very sneaky stuff. Um, and 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 actually, if you if you really do systematic experiments, what you find is that. You know, what is what you find is and, and I'm always trying to say this to neuroscientists is that just just introspect a little bit and you'll see that in many ways your own experience falsifies a lot of the simplicities and, and, and myths of neuroscience. So and and then someone will come along and back up the introspection later, you know, in some revolutionary study, right, that shows essentially that what anyone who introspects, you know, for, for a moment will tell you. And that's and an example of this would be that, you know, people were convinced that you only got information from this incredibly precise center of your visual field. Um, and that's true for really detailed information. So like lettering, Right. So it's like it's really hard to read letters in your periphery. Right. But but motion, but motion, you can see really, really well. Even in your periphery, you can see motion well. Right. You can't see color quite as well. And you should think about it as if you just introspect. Right. You'll you'll and you think about your conscious experience. You can sort of think about it as like a, a visual grid in front of you, and the you know the parts of the grid are much more narrow and refined right at the center. But there's still a grid out to the sides, and if you do actually, and they've now done experiments showing this very detailed that like you put blobs of color in different parts of people's vision and try to have them identify it and so on. And if you do it systematically, what you find is that you are aware of your entire. Uh, you know, visual field, you just lose some of the details and specificities at the edges of it. Um, in that you could you might get away with changing color, right, right at the edge, you might get away with changing a little bit of form, you might get away with. But that's basically what 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 you would say from your own actual, you know, introspective experience, right? Like, it's actually not at all surprising. Um, and yet there's this tendency to sort of say, oh, maybe consciousness isn't really doing anything. Maybe consciousness is super low information, right? Maybe consciousness, right? And, and, and I think that in many ways, that's all just historical outgrowths of this period of behaviorism where it was just totally unacceptable to talk about consciousness. And consciousness presents such a problem for science in general that that there's almost this instinct to minimize it as much as possible it's just this it's just this hat on top of a hat you know in, in the brain it's, it's doing almost nothing right versus your own lived experience almost everything you're doing is you know explainable explicable and based on your stream of conscious experience like al- almost everything your body does right like uh, you know you you need a drink of water so you get up and you go downstairs right it's it, it's 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 just like it's it's just like this it seems very obvious to me that the stream of maintaining a stream of consciousness is essentially the main job and goal of the brain as an organ like that's its main function and so when you when you try to put consciousness aside or reduce it um um you what you're, you're you're really hamstringing yourself as a science because you're you're putting aside the main function of the organ that you're looking at okay so um yeah i mean 
that's an interesting point. You know, I think you're talking about Invisible Gorilla and all these other things. Basically, there is a way of talking about um, our brain as if it's modular. There are all these, like, sub-functions, sub-processes that we don't have control over. Um, and the conscious aspect is just, like, this little node, you know? Or maybe it's some emergent phenomena. I don't know. Um, and what you're saying is, that's just kind of BS. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just yeah. overdone. I mean, it, it's, neat, it's neat to say. It's neat to say. <laughs> I, I, I was phrased it as like, listen, there are some like big, big results in neuroscience that get referenced like all the time. Like you're absolutely right. The, 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 the gorilla one is like this, this classic one where you're supposed to be paying attention to this video of people passing, passing around a basketball and a gorilla like moves in a, someone in a gorilla suit, obviously moves, uh, in and around the players. And then there's some result that like, you know, the majority of people like don't even see, you know, this gorilla or whatever. And the way that this is demonstrated is, you know, you show the video in class and then you ask like, hey, you know, who saw the gorilla? And like only like, you know, half the people like raise their hand or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think that the chance that that sort of stuff like really well replicates, um, you know, broadly is is generally pretty low. I think that there's a lot of stuff in neuroscience that's sort of like the Stanford prison experiment or ego depletion or priming, you know, which which is true only in some contexts. You know, there's all these results from psychology that are very, very questionable and very hard to hold up. And there's a huge uh, bias within the literature for these um these old school results. I would love to see, you know, a modern replication attempt um, of of some of this stuff about you know people not paying attention. Because when when it was first explained to me, I didn't see the gorilla because I was bored in class and I was doing something else, right? And uh, you, you, you know, this is like forty five minutes, you know, into the class or whatever, and people are looking out the windows, you know, or looking at their phones, and then the, the, you know the professor is always like, "Well, thirty percent of the class didn't even notice it. It's like thirty percent of the class didn't even watch the video." Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm sort of, it, 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 it's not a fun position to be in to say like, I, I don't believe this scientific result. Uh, but I think you can make those sort of claims when it comes to the small sample, very big, um, you're sort of drawing a huge amount of information from this very like small sample sort of weird dubious setup and you're and 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 you're sort of speculating wildly you know from the from these results and that's been a great way to make a career um but but you know if you if you think that you, you know there there's you know I, I think even you know system one system two that sort of stuff none of that is really gonna last. Um, I don't think a lot of the results from contemporary psychology hold up, um, even the stuff about split brain, by the way, all that stuff has been redone and, and found to be very questionable, right? That's a founding myth of neuroscience, right? Like that, that, that is that I reference it myself without even referencing, right? You see the temptations, right? Like I reference that myself. Uh, but if you look at later results of people who, who essentially got their corpus callosum split, um, you know, d- due to epilepsy, and, and you redo those experiments is much more questionable than the original stuff made it seem to be. So I, I think that um, I've become very skeptical of a lot of results in neuroscience, and I don't want to say you know for sure that the that results are wrong, but I think there's almost no way that stuff isn't uh, isn't overblown. 
Um, and if you look at like the more detailed recent stuff on on people talking about their own phenomenology and so on, you have a very rich, detailed, conscious experience. I think there's almost no like neuroscientific fact that can sort of dissuade from that. I think we have like first person access to that. And I think neuroscientists should think a bit more about what they're experiencing themselves and then and then look at the brain and say, okay, well, how does the brain do that? Rather than sort of treating it as if every moment's a mystery, right? Eric, it's uh, it's interesting talking to you because I, I get a little bit of whiplash of, we know nothing. We know nothing in neuroscience. Oh, by the way, consciousness is this massive big deal. And, you know, diminishing it is, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we, we, we're we going between these uh, two, like, viewpoints where sometimes you sound kind of like a pessimist. And then on the other hand, you also think, obviously, that uh, your field, I think, is going small ball in terms of, like, they, they could go bigger. Yes. And I think that that's because, um, you know, to, to, to me, have I seen any, it, it's sort of like, I have, I have, I, I'm very skeptical of, of, of like theories of consciousness that people present within the book. I don't really p- push my own. I sort of talk about like meta, almost like meta um aspects concerning theories of consciousness like how are they possible what would falsify them um so it's sort of coming at the project sideways i do think it's very i think it's very easy to look at consciousness and say be very pessimistic and say like we're never going to figure it out um the one reason why i am occasionally an optimist with regards to to scientific progress on this question is that i don't think that anyone has really made much of a go of it in that the number of people, the number of like young in brilliant scientists working on literally a theory of consciousness, like, like, like exactly like the theory of evolution. Like, like how is it that the physical brain instantiates a stream of consciousness? How does that happen? Right? Why does that happen? Trying to answer that. I would say the number of people working on that in any serious way um, who are sort of young enough to really, um, you know, that we would expect them to make like major theoretical breakthroughs is like a dozen people globally, a couple dozen people globally, maybe. Um, and that's like, including the people who who I don't think are, are that that good or that promising, right? That's like, that's, that's, that's being pretty broad. And so it's not like physics. It's not, it's not like um, trying to unify quantum physics and general relativity, which no one has done yet, right? No one has figured that out. But how many young physics graduate students have, have just sort of tried to make a go of it? Um, probably not, probably not less than we'd like, I think probably people get get sort of pipelined, you know, probably a bit too early uh, for, for, for many reasons. But certainly, we must be talking about 10s of 1000s to hundreds of 1000s, uh, you know, globally, right? Um, versus the problem of consciousness is just as pressing um, ever as a problem. And yet there's almost no one working on it. It's, it's a totally, um, it's a very, very, uh, niche, uh, scientific field, uh, that's quite small. It's hard to get funding in it. And so it, it's, it's almost like, well, we, I, I, I do see how it, it looks very hard. A, a, a significant chunk of the book is me arguing that there may be aspects to a theory of consciousness that we can never actually answer appropriately due to, just irreducible epistemological uncertainty that we're like sort of 
being stuck in this world trying to understand ourselves. There may be some very strange self-reference loops that are occurring. But the problem is that we we haven't really given a go of it as a civilization. Not 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 really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> civilizational scale, you know, lack of ambition here. Uh, so, you know, we've been talking for a while. Uh, there's other topics in there, free will, there's stuff about Descartes. I mean, you know, Descartes, man, that guy did a lot of different things, you know? Um, but, um, uh, just in terms of, you know, a lot of people know geometry, obviously, but, you know, philosophy, you know, I think they're before him, all this stuff. Um, I, I want to, I want to know if there's one thing that you want uh, people to take away from your book. Um, uh, like, keep it a little specific, you know, cause obviously, you know, I, I'm assuming you want people be good people that read, you know, whatever, but it's like, what, what's a specific thing that you would want people to take away from reading this book? I'm just curious. I, I think that, um, there's really sort of two and I'll pick the one that we've referenced like before so that, we have a bit more of a background. And, and I think it's this notion that I talk about of scientific incompleteness. Um, and I talk about this a little bit later on. And, and I think that this is sort of the defeatist pessimistic so- side of me. Um, and, and, and that's that I, I, I don't, this is, this is, it's an opinion, this notion of scientific incompleteness. Um, it, it, it's, it's not like it's, it's original to me. And some of the people who have believed it are, uh, might surprise you. So an example would be Stephen Hawking, who believed it in the context of a theory of everything. You know, everyone knows about his more triumphal, uh, you know, early stage, uh, you know, work. But fewer people know about, you know, towards the end of his life, he was giving talks uh, saying that there would never be a theory of everything found. And his reasoning was very simple um, and I think rather elegant, which was essentially that, well, physics is based on math. Mathematics has all sorts of paradoxical problems within it. It's not really, a, it's not really, it, it's not, it doesn't really actually have firm foundations. We've known this ever since Gödel, And so he's, he's sort of like, well, math, the paradoxes and problems of math bleed into physics, right? Because you're just, you're just forced to use math to talk about physics. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's sort of, you know, quite an interesting argument. Um, but I, I, I think even more broadly, you know, what I hope people take away is at least that that this is a real possibility scientific incompleteness i think it's probably if you just if you just step back and you put yourself outside of the fact that we live in this in this era of 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 of, of abundance and technological progress you know mostly because of intense scientific advancement right so so there's just no denying that right but clearly that's going to sort of bias you of be like this process is going to just go on forever um and I think it's very possible that the, the science will not give us all the facts that we want out of science, right? There'll be sort of things that seem as if they're, they're, they're scientific facts that we should be able to, to figure it out. And, and, and we actually can't. And there's literally already, like people might say, well, this is some sort of big metaphysical thing. No, we already know that this is true. We, we already know that this is true because there are things within physics that are, that are known to be unknowable. Like you, you, you already have a proof that they're unknowable. In 2015, there was a great nature paper um, uh, arguing this about the spectral gap, which is this physical um, quantity that is useful for for physicists to calculate. Well, there's no general way of calculating it. We know that that there are sort of uncalculable spectral gaps out there. It's just like this undecidable thing in some instances. 
The reason it's undecidable is actually, if you look deep at the proof that they give due to this self-reference, they get, they basically do this very clever thing where they get the spectral gap to sort of talk about spectral caps and it creates this like, you know, this recursion. Recursion was the initial big problem in mathematics as well. Um, Self-reference is a really big problem. And then if you just think very, very broadly, if science were to be incomplete, if it were to be incomplete sort of in an analogous way to mathematics where you know there there are sort of certain things that just don't quite make sense or lead to paradox within mathematics if science were to be incomplete where would you expect it and you would expect it around self-reference um and 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 what is the most self-referential part of science it's the search for a theory of consciousness because you are observers looking for how there are observers in the first place why there are observers in the first place so it's it's sort of like at this at this high meta level, unsurprising, right? That there would be all sorts of confusion and that it would feel very paradoxical and difficult to make progress on this question if it were the case that scientific incompleteness were were true. And I had never really seen that. Um, you know, there's aspects of this view you can find in other authors. I'm not claiming it's like you know original to this book, but I think the sketching it out and putting it all together and putting that argument um, together. Um, and, 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 and sort of, and sort of, uh, you know, making it in full is, uh, is, was one of the goals, uh, for this book to sort of have this statement out there. Like maybe, maybe we really are running into something very, very fundamentally difficult here. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I hope that that is that, that, that people think about ways to sort of work around that, right? Like, like maybe you are dealing with paradoxes, but we can still do a lot, right? And then you have to decide what a lot means and, and how to pursue that scientifically and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, as they say, food for thought, I mean, there's a, we touched on a lot of different <laughs> topics. It's a, you know, it, it is, it is a short, uh, dense book, but you know, it's a survey, uh, it, it jumps, you know, it, it's a jaunt. It touches a lot of different topics. Uh, you know, you obviously did your research. You did the work, as they say. Um, so um, it's impressive. Uh, what's your um, last question? Last question. What's your next book, man? Oh, I, for now, I'm actually just focusing on write, writing on Substack, which is which is refreshing mm-hmm. uh, to be sort of, uh, about, uh, you know, f- f- more fully devoted to the medium. Um I, you, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely sure I will do another, uh, you know, nonfiction uh, or, uh, book uh, in my life. But I also want to do one more fiction book. Um, and um, I'm, I'm probably gonna have to wait about 20 years for that. But if you if you're just patient, and you know, and you wait, you know, just a couple decades, um, I'll, I'll have a I'll have a fiction book out um, that that I already have plotted out. And that's one of the things I want to get done before. Uh, well, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't talk too much about your Substack. I mean, they know about it, the intrinsic perspective. Um, you got some like nice little, uh, you know, featured publication in 2021, 2022, and 2023. So, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's 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 been a huge amount of fun. I mean, I love, I absolutely love writing online for the interactivity, but also to, so that I don't have to deal with editors um and 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 deal with like pitching to publications i mean it's just such like a cleaner you know more fun more fun way to write um and you know i mean i'm i i don't think that the media the medium has been has been fully explored yet i think there are all still all sorts of things that people um sort of haven't haven't quite figured out exactly what you can do with 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 this with this medium and as a writer 
new mediums attract me because they're rare. Like there's, you know, writing a newsletter is different than writing a, a nonfiction book. It is different than writing, uh, you know, a, a, a novel. Like, you know this, right? It's, it's its own particular form. And in a way, newsletters have only been around for, you know, are at least really been popular for, you know, 20 years. And I think they're still not even taken very seriously, like as almost like an artistic medium. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, if there's one thing I've, I've thought about a lot um, is, you know, if you're if you're like a young writer or something you know it's like why is why is you know why are any of these people so famous like why do we know their names right it's because they jumped in early for movements um it's it's almost never because they were really the best at something it's because they were sort of early to some new thing you know um or or they sort of were the apotheosis of it they sort of perfected the the genre or something and uh, i think people should sort of pivot more in life to things that people haven't really done before and you've been blogging you know for a while now but in right, I think I think you you were you were like golden era of blogging. Yeah, right? two thousand two, man, two thousand two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for you, it probably feels you know like oh th- you know this is quite old or so on. But just historically, you know, if you think about it, that's very very new. So in a way, the writer, you know, the the the, the writer in me is very attracted to just like you know, when I write a book, I always feel like I'm putting, I'm standing in a big line of giants who have these huge tomes, many of which I've read and that I admire greatly. I'm sort of offering up my own like meager thing. And, you know, when I think about writing like a newsletter um, as like this different medium, you know, there are some people I really like and and respect their writing of, but, you know, there's not this massive line of giants yeah. that I sort of have to you're get not, you're not being, at the end. Yeah, you're going to be the shoulders. You're going to be the shoulders that people stand on. What? What? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see. I hope. I mean, hopefully, I'm just I'm just trying to say you're at the beginning here. You know, we're 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 at year year one for this sort of medium, which will probably evolve and mutate in the next couple of generations. Yeah, I I really think that this is where a lot of I, I noticed on my own habits that I was reading more online. I, there, there was just no denying it. I was reading more online and I think it's just utterly foolish for, you know, I know, I know all these, you know, ri- you know, these, these you know, writers who are writing for, for outlets and publications are just, are just not often, um, often reading them. I, I think that they're reading a significant portion online. Uh, that's not to say that that's, you know, innately good um, or that that is necessarily preferable. Um, for me, as long as people are reading, I'm happy. But uh, but it is uh, it is an opportunity. And I don't think people have really wrapped their heads around how big newsletters will be from a well, from a literary perspective i think eventually people are going to crack it you're going to get people who are very good at it and it and and the 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 innateness of it will make it so that you know when people are naming their favorite writers in 20 to 30 years uh and, and people are already doing this this is one reason why i switched because i asked some graduate students who's your favorite writer right and they named bloggers um and i was like that's very interesting that's very interesting that that switch is already happening yeah, like uh, Scott Alexander. Yeah, yeah, that was that was for yes. sure a name. Um, Basically. Yeah, I, th- I think Scott Alexander is probably the first, one of the first like real, I think, titans, titans of the form, for sure, for sure. He's native. Uh, He's native. He came out of it. He is of it. He created it. And, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, we, uh, we're in his shadows in some ways. I mean, whatever. I mean, I think, I think we're doing okay adjacent to the Alexander yeah, world. I, no, no, I absolutely agree. And I, and I, and I, and I love Scott's work. I think that 
I think that he he has a the 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 nice thing for me is that I don't think I don't think what there's any way that one person can sort of you know fill the whole role. And I also think that he I I think that a lot of his writing habits and and ideas are are pre newsletter. So it's not actually. Um, it, it's a it, it, the the standard blog was a lot harder to, to attract constant attention to, so you had to produce more stuff. And I think he still has that he still has that habit. So I don't I don't actually think that he's really a newsletter, a full newsletter writer. Um, 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 yeah, I think I think he he still has some of these these habits. And so I think that um, you know I'm really eager to see when he well, you know. I, I want Scott to have more time, you know, <laughs> I feel yeah. like, I feel like, yeah. you know, and I, I want him to like have a bit more time and like not have to publish every day. Right. And just do, oh, do yeah, I, yeah. I want to see him do one thing a week for like a year. And I think it would be like yeah. some of the best online yes. writing that like ever happened. Yes. Yes. Well, um, you know, uh, it's great talking to you. Um, let's make this a yearly. It seems like, uh, yeah, we absolutely right. should. I love coming on here. Um, it's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you because you can, you can talk about anything. So, uh, that's <laughs> I, try that's I try to, I try to, yeah. Um, you know, you know, the listeners, I think you guys all know about Substack. just check out the link, you know, um, what I love, you know, I will say, um, you have very diverse interests and, uh, you know, you've been talking about, you know, artificial intelligence and other things. You're an observer of culture. It's really great. And so people should check that out. You have a fertile, uh, broad mind, despite the fact that, you know, you do this neuroscience stuff, which is, you know, that's your bread and butter. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, it was great talking to you, Eric. And I will see you online. Absolutely. I'll see you. Thank you so much. Really. This podcast was brought to you by Orchid, the only whole genome sequencing company focused on embryos. You know that genetics plays a big role in our health. 30% of neural developmental diseases, 10 to 40% of pediatric cancers, and more than 30% of birth defects have a known genetic cause. Families considering IVF use Orchid to see which of their embryos have these conditions and work with doctors to choose their lowest risk embryo so they can have a successful pregnancy and a healthy baby. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. This podcast for kids.